When we say that somebody is divisive, we usually don't mean that as a compliment. We don't usually say about good old Joe, man, Joe is the salt of the earth. I love that guy. He's got a heart of gold. He's just so divisive. That just doesn't seem to fit. Uh, and the reason for that is because a divisive person is someone who likes to start arguments. They like to spread gossip. They create cliques. They hold grudges. Uh, they like to talk behind people's back. They continually undermine and question authority, and they like to pit one person or a group of people against another. Again, these are none of the characteristics that any of us want to be identified by. In fact, we don't want to marry, employ, or hang out with people who are divisive because they, are, they will suck the very joy out of your life, all right? So it's very difficult to be around such people, and we all know them. In fact, if I were to ask you to, to think about somebody that you know is divisive, you'd probably at least come up with one person, maybe even a mini list of people that are divisive this way. But at the same time, if we were to put our list all together, one name that would probably not be on there is the name of Jesus Christ. The last thing we would think of Jesus is that he is actually uh, divisive. And yet, in the Word of God, in the passage that we're preaching, he actually says in it that he came to divide. Now, that doesn't mean that he shares in the same divisive characteristics that I just listed just a moment ago. Uh, he's not divisive in that way, but yet he still came to divide in certain ways. And this passage before us, before us tells us in what ways Jesus came to do that. So two ways in which Jesus came to divide. First of all, Jesus coming would divide humanity. It would divide humanity. Now, if we look, we'll see that Jesus had just been instructing his disciples on how they ought to be ready for his appearing, how they ought to be actively waiting for him to come during the second coming. And he instructed them. He said, you've got to be ready and you've got to be faithful. He said, when he comes back and for whoever is ready and faithful, he will bless them. But whoever's not ready and faithful, he will, he will uh, judge them. Now, before, now, now, he's talking about his second coming there. And, but before he can uh, fulfill his purpose in the second coming, he has to fulfill his purpose for the first coming. In his first coming, he didn't come to judge sinners, but rather die for sinners. Look at the word of God, if you will, in verse 49. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, this is a hard text. Here's why it doesn't sound like Jesus. Not the Jesus we know and love. When we read that first sentence, it sounds like Jesus is going, man, I cannot. He goes, I have come to set the world on fire and I can't wait to light the match. That's what it sounds like. And that's not the Jesus that you and I have come to know through the scriptures. In fact, so much so that many commentators, many expositors of the word of God and scholars really disagree on what all of this actually means, what Jesus meant by these statements. So we have to be very careful with it. And the only way we're really going to know what Jesus meant is if we understand two words in which he uses here, the meaning of fire and the meaning of baptism. So let's look at those just for a moment. He first talks about this fire. I came to cast fire on the earth. What is he talking about with fire? When, when you look at the New Testament, and fire is used to describe several different things. Sometimes it talks, it, it represents the word of God, other times the gospel, and still other times the Holy Spirit himself. 
But most of the time when it's used in New Testament and Old Testament alike, and specifically in Luke, the majority of the time it's used, it's actually used for the judgment of God. And so here, I believe that's how it's being used within context. He's talking about his second coming. He's talking about people being ready. Why? Because he will come to judge the living and the dead. And this is a great picture of what judgment is like, fire. I don't know if you could pick of a better example. Why? Well, as one author says, it's because fire has two, a twofold effect. He says, he says, it consumes whatever is destined for destruction, while it, at the same time, purifying whatever God can t- uh, ordains to refine. Fire always consumes or purifies. It does one of the two, one, one, one or the two things, depending on the nature of what it burns. So, for example, my wife and I are clearing a little bit of land. We've got all these trees. We got them down, and now we're putting them in a pile. And we had a huge pile, and within literally two hours, all of those limbs were just basically consumed in this little ash pile. It was crazy how quickly it burned. But it wouldn't work that way if you were trying to put gold or silver in fire. If you did that, it wouldn't be consumed. It would only be refined. Whatever impurities were would come to the top and you would skim it off and you would have something even more precious and more pure to begin with. This is a picture of what it will be like at Jesus' second coming. When he comes back, he will come in his full glory. The Bible tells us that God is a consuming fire. So when Jesus comes, his glory will no longer be be veiled by his humanity, but he will come in a blaze of glory, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, those who are not in Christ Jesus, who are still in their sin, will be consumed in God's judgment. But those who are believers in Jesus Christ will be purified by the judgment of God, which is coming. Think about that, beloved. You and I, when Jesus Christ comes again, we will not be who we are right now. When we were first saved, when God brought us to faith, granted us the faith to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we were justified at that moment when we were saved, which means that God declared us to be righteous, that we were right before God. But you and I both know that even though in the view of God we're righteous, we're still struggling with sin, amen? Every day we're struggling with sin against it and we're fighting against it. So now at the moment of justification, we begin this process of sanctification, where every day we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ every day. But one day when he comes, that struggle will be over. And as is appearing, you and I will be glorified, which means that we will be purified correctly. We won't struggle with sin again. No wonder we are waiting for his coming and his appearing. We'll no longer have to struggle with sin at all. But that's all at his second coming. He's not talking about his second coming. He's not talking about that he came to bring fire at his second coming, but rather at his first coming during his ministry at this particular time. What does that mean? Well, what it means is he did come to bring judgment when he came the first time, but not to bring judgment on sinners, but rather to bring judgment upon himself for sinners. That's why he came. That's what he's talking about. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, not on sinners, but on myself. I came to die, to be consumed by by the judgment of God for the sins of the world. And then notice what he says, and would that it were already kindled. He's anxious for it to happen. He goes, I wish it's already done. I wish that the fire of God, I wish the judgment of God had already fallen on me. Why? Because until that point, the salvation of his people could not be secured until his death burial, and in his resurrection. So this is what Jesus is saying. 
He goes, I'm going to come to the earth. He goes, I'm coming to be able to rain down fire, to bring down fire upon the earth, but not you, beloved, but rather on me. And I can't wait until it happens. I'm anxious for its coming. Well, understanding the meaning of fire and, and, and judgment and its correlation here then helps us understand what baptism means. Uh, he says in verse 50, notice, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So the question is, what does he mean by baptism? Well, in the New Testament, there are pr primarily two types of baptism, right? So there's a, a, a baptism, water baptism, and then there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus had already taken part in both. Both have actually already occurred. So he can't be referring to that. He was baptized in the river by Jordan, or, or by, by John in the river Jordan. And then he was also baptized by the Holy Spirit when he came up from the water. Remember, the Holy Spirit came and descended down upon him, demonstrating that filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism. So whatever baptism he's talking about, he can't be talking about those two. And he can't be talking about something at his second coming. It must happen sometime between there at the end of his time here on earth. So there's only one possible explanation. The baptism in which he's talking about is a baptism unto death. That connects perfectly with, with the idea that the fire of God was going to fall down on him. Here what he's saying is the floods of God's wrath the floods of suffering were going to wash over Jesus Christ while he was on the cross. And until that happens, as he looks forward to it, it brought him distress, he says. He says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That same Greek word that's translated distressed here is actually used in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. Paul uses it when he is describing the distress, or he, he uses the word hard-pressed, between what he wanted to do. He told the Philippians, he says, he's later in his life, and he says, I don't know what to do. I'm hard-pressed between wanting to go home with Jesus, which is much better than staying here, and on the other side, to be able to remain here, which would be more profitable for you. It's the same Greek word that he's using. But the best picture of the distress that Jesus was under took place the night before Jesus would go to the cross when he was praying with his disciples. And all of a sudden, the pressure and the distress is so great of knowing what was going to happen that he began to sweat great drops of blood at that point. What was it? Jesus knew what was coming. It wasn't a surprise. Jesus knew every bit of sin that would be placed on him and every bit of torture, torment, and suffering that would come from God as he sought to satisfy that sin. He knew it. Why is that important? Because there are many critics of Christianity that said that Jesus never came to give his life. That the only reason that, the, that, that people say in Christianity says that he came to give his life is really he came to be able to take over and it was supposed to be a political coup to be able to take over the Romans and set his people free. But his plan went terribly bad. And when he died, his disciples had to keep the movement going. So they changed the plan and said, hey, guess what? He didn't really mean to come and, 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 uh, and, and give this, this worldly kingdom. He came actually to die. And people say that's not true. But every bit of what we read in the word of God says, the opposite. It tells us instead Jesus' plan to die and to come and to bring fire down from heaven upon himself was the plan all along. In fact, from chapter 9, we, begin to, we saw it when he says that he set his mind towards Jerusalem. From that particular point, we have seen that Jesus, with, with, all, with an all-consuming focus uh, and relentlessness, uh, a relentless pursuit to accomplish the work that he had been sent and to accomplish it without hesitation and without delay, 
This is why Jesus came. It was the plan. This is what he was planning before from eternity's past. It wasn't plan B. It was plan A. Does this, does this, let me ask you two things. That particular truth, does it stir the affections of your heart when you hear that truth? Does it stir you to know? Yes, we know that Jesus suffered for us. But when we go back and we sit there and say, wait a minute. He not only suffered for us, it's, it's one thing for me to be able to say, hey, I'll take a bone marrow transplant for you. Don't count on it. Let's just, it's just an example. All right, I, I'll give my bone marrow for you. All right, and I'll do this. And then all of a sudden they tell me exactly what I'm going to go through. And I might be like, I might not be the best person for this because I know a little bit better as what's going on. Or you would hear somebody going, if I knew what I, had go, what I had to go through, when I had to go through it, I would have never done it. Jesus Christ knew the anguish, the absolute anguish that would wash over him. He knew it from eternity's past, and yet he still came to it. Think of it this way. You and I, anybody who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit began to convict us of our sin, you and I, for the first time, beloved, came to understand how deserving of God's judgment we are and what we were and how frightened we were of that judgment. Were you not? And we wanted to flee it. And the only way that we could flee the coming wrath of God was for you and I to repent and to turn and to believe in Jesus Christ because we realized there was no way to satisfy that wrath towards us. There was no way to escape that judgment except for repenting and believing. So you and I fled that judgment of God. That was the last thing we wanted to do. And yet Jesus ran towards that same judgment and condemnation to save you and me. Does that not stir the affections of your heart? And when it stirs the affections of our heart, it should always drive us to action. It should always drive us to be able to move and to seek to be obedient. And that brings us to the second point is, do you desire to do the will of God in the same way? Note this. Jesus knew that being obedient would cause suffering. I want you all to hear that. To be obedient to God is not easy. It usually requires you something. It usually requires a broken relationship, a hurt heart, condemnation, pain, a loss of pleasure, physical pleasure. When we have to say no to God, most of the time, there's a cost that is with that. Jesus knew the cost, but he did it anyway. Why? Well, because he was able to, even though recognizing what the cost would be and seeing it in high definition, knowing it clearly, he still was able to press through. Why? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He looked beyond the suffering that he would have to suffer in order to be obedient to God. Why? Because there was a greater glory to come. It's the same thing for you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't stop being obedient to God because it becomes hard. We don't stop seeking to do all that God would ask us to do because now our life is going to be more difficult, so we don't want to do it. Instead, what do we do? We obey and we submit. Why? Because there is a greater glory to come. Paul said himself, he wrote, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in 
us. If you keep your eyes off of the treasure that is to come, for we who are believers in Jesus Christ, you will time and time again be disobedient whenever things begin to become hard. But if you can keep in mind the gracious love of Jesus Christ, of what he did, of how he faced and knew what kind of pain he would endure for the cross, for the greater glory of redeeming you and I, you keep that at the forefront of your mind and knowing that a greater glory is to come, that's what empowers us to obey him and do what he calls us to do no matter what the cost. So he's come to divide the world. The whole world is going to be divided into believers and unbelievers, regenerate and unregenerate, righteous and unrighteous. But there's a second division that will come that he points out. Jesus' coming would divide families. So again, look at verse 51. He says, do you think that I've come to give, uh, to give peace on earth? Pause for a second. How would every single one of us answer that? Yes. Yes. And, and if he had given his disciples a couple more minutes and not rushed this whole thing, they would have said, yes. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. That's why. You go into the Old Testament. You look at the Old Testament and you look at the book of Isaiah. And he says, the Messiah who will come will be the prince of yeah, I think he's going to bring peace. We look at Jesus coming in his birth in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. We study this, that when he comes, the angels begin to rejoice in Jesus Christ, and, and they begin to rejoice at his coming, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then Jesus, even in his ministry, oftentimes when he ministers to someone, he'll say, go in peace, time and time again. That sounds like a peaceful guy. Bring in some peace. And then not only Christ, but also his followers, his apostles, the apostle Paul, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, he says that Jesus Christ had brought peace and reconciliation between Jews and Greeks. He brought peace between them. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 1, it talks about that you and I have a peace with God through the person of Jesus Christ. So the answer is, yes, Jesus do we think you came to bring peace? Absolutely, we think you came to bring peace. And Jesus says emphatically, no. No, I tell you, but rather division. How in the world are we supposed to understand this? Well, the way we understand it is both are true. Jesus came to be able to bring peace, and Jesus came to bring division as well. Look, we know he came to bring peace. He came to give us a peace with God. Would you agree? That is that we are no longer enemies of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We are now children of God. We are now friends of God because of what he's done for us. We have a peace with God, but we also have a peace of God. When you or I are walking in the spirit and we're trusting him and we know what kind of God we are, we have faith that he is a sovereign God, that he is in control over all things. And no matter what's happening around us, no matter what a dumpster fire is going on around us, there is an inner peace that surpasses all understanding. Why? Because he gave us the peace of God. And then there's a peace between enemies, former enemies, people that we didn't like before, before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden there's a possibility of peace. Why? Because we're all underneath the leadership of one kingdom. We're now under the kingdom of God. And so we now have peace with those that we used to be enemies with. Of course, Christ brought peace. But as we saw in the first point, he also came to divide. Let me say it again. To divide all humanity into two groups, believing and unbelieving, regenerate and unregenerate, righteous and unrighteous. But because all of humanity is divided in those two groups, 
then what we're going to see is we're going to see a division in every area of culture in society. So, so we're going to see we're going to see nations that are divided because of Christ. We're going to see religions that are divided because of Christ. And Jesus says we are even going to see families, the most precious relationships we have, divided because of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 52. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three, and they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against father-in-law. Basically, he's picturing one home that has five people in it. There's a mom, a dad, father, mother, and then below them, and they're also a husband and wife. Then below them, they have a daughter who is single. And then they also have a son who is married. So you have a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. See, see what we're doing? And then he just begins to talk about all the divisions and what is getting between all of these people. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is dividing the, the two between them. Why is this? We have to understand in your heart, in my, in my, from the word of God, it, we have to understand that it's not so much that Jesus is intentionally coming to wreck homes and destroy marriages. But this is a byproduct of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you and I forget how radical a change comes about when a person is saved. There is no greater transformation than you and I will take part in our lives in this life until Jesus Christ comes in of your soul. When you and I are saved, it's a miracle of God. Listen, beloved, he changes you. Your nature is different. You still struggle in the flesh with old sins, but who you truly want to be is not who you used to be. You wanna follow him, you wanna obey him, you want him to be glorified. Are you still struggling? Yes, that's that flesh. One day that flesh will be put to death, will be, will be refined, but until that day we keep fighting. But it's a radical change. So if a, two people are in marriage and one is radically changed and regenerate and the other is not, is there going to be conflict? Yes, not intentional, but why? Because the, the person is saved, him being regularly changed, their purpose and allegiance and life is completely altered. At one time, they could walk together so easily. Why? Because they were pursuing the same thing. What was it? Sin. They were, they, they were pursuing self-righteousness. They would be their own gods, determining what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. They, didn't, they weren't submitting to some other god. They were their own gods. And they were living for the material things of this world or whatever it is that this world, they could get much most out of this life that they believe would give them true life. Then a person is saved and all that changes. A person is saved and finally they sit there and say, I'm no longer my God, he's my God. I'm no longer trying to make up as I go what is right and wrong. Instead, what is right and wrong is now dictated by the word of God that my king has ultimately given me. And I'm not pursuing the material things of this world. Instead, now I am pursuing the creator of the things of this world. Do you see how these things can begin to come in conflict? And now, all of a sudden, the one who is lost, they begin to get a little bit upset because they're like, what did you do to my people? What did you do to my wife? What did you do to my husband? Do you, you see the tensions? Some people in this very place have experienced that thing. It's extremely, extremely difficult. Amos tells us, he says, how can two walk together unless they both agree? Well, very difficult it is to be able to do it. So let me read a couple things. What, what are some things that really divide when you come to faith in Christ? Well, divisions come because of the gospel. 
When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the first thing you want to do, is this not true, is to see your family come to the same faith. Would you agree? My spouse, my kids, I want everything else. How many of you would say it was easy? <laughs> it's easier for me to talk to a stranger about the gospel than it is my own family. Why? Because within the gospel message, I have to broach the subject of sin. So with my family, who has known me my entire life, I have to go, hey, listen, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're a sinner just like me. And they're just sitting there going, you're telling me I'm a sinner? Bro, I've known you all your life. You're the biggest sinner I know. And it doesn't matter how much you go, I know, I know, I know, I know. They're like, bro, don't, don't come around here with all your Jesus stuff condemning me. I know you may be fooling the people down at that church, but you ain't going to fool me. I'm your mama, right? And so people understand. And so there's this huge tension between the two because of the gospel. And then they look at you as though you're a hypocrite. On one side, you're saying, hey, we're all sinners. And you're sitting there going, well, wait a minute, you're a sinner. Why are you telling me that I'm a sinner? The second division is that it comes in repentance and with repentance. And, and so the uh, sinful, the idea with the repentance is when the other person chooses not to live for sin, but to live for Christ, all of a sudden they can't do the same things that they used to do. They can't go to the same places together that they used to go. They can enjoy some of the same sinful things that they once enjoyed. They can't talk about the same sinful things that they used to talk about or watch the same sinful things that they used to find pleasure in. Do you see the problem? The gospel in this repentance causes great division between the two. So what do we do? Let me give you a little bit of application for this. Thinking that God is divided and that division is going to cause problems and strains within our life, specifically within our family. Let me just give you three things very quickly. First of all, first of all, what do we do with this? Um, hold on, let me back up. Lost where I am. So what does this mean? First of all, uh, don't marry an unbeliever. Just going to throw that out there. Just going to state the obvious. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever for what partnership um, has righteousness with, with lawfulness or what, law what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord with Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The whole idea there, the answer is none, 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 none. So if you're, if you're here and you're single and you're looking to be married or if you're divorced and you're looking to be married again, do not, under any circumstance, marry somebody who is not a true believer in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. If you would do this, this would help me tremendously with counseling, all right? <laughs> so the idea is this, and the reason is, is you're going to come together. And look, I get it. I was 27, 28 before I got married. And I didn't get married until that age because nobody wanted to marry me. That's why I waited so long, just being truthful. But I remember the angst in my heart. I remember how badly I wanted to be married. I remember sitting there and becoming just righteous about all my married friends. They would sit there and the man would talk to his wife in a certain way. And I'd sit there and go, God, if I had a wife, I'd never talk to her that way. <laughs> I can barely say it without laughing now, to be honest with you. And you just wanted to be married, but, but, but young person or single person, let me just say this, and you won't, you won't believe me, but I love you. I have nothing to gain from this, except for to try to be obedient to God and his word. Whatever pain and suffering you may experience as a single is nothing compared to the pain and suffering you could experience if you married somebody who is unequally yoked with you. So what do we do 
uh, with this is don't, so we don't marry uh, an unbeliever. Number two, uh, don't be overbearing with the person that you're married to. And this could be family. This could, be, this could apply to moms and kids and, and, and fathers and children as well and each other. Just don't be overbearing. In other words, don't sit there and say, you need to come to Christ. I'm telling you right now. You're going to burn in hell if you don't come to Christ. All right? That's what I'm telling you. That's right. You'll burn the flames. Jesus speaks about the fire. It's a different fire for you. No, that's probably not the best way to go about it. So what are we doing? Not to be overbearing. But why are we overbearing with those that we love? Because we love them. And the reality of what is at stake makes us tense. There's a pressure on us understanding that if this person doesn't come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will forever be lost. And so there is this kind of time ticking. But let me give you this, this advice. Pop off. It doesn't sound like what it really means, but this is just three words. Pray, obey, and be patient. Pray, without love, pray for that loved one. Pray for them constantly, day and night. Listen, you will never, ever, ever save that person based on what you say or what you do. It will only by, be by a grand act of the mercy and grace of God that saves. Pray to him who can save. Pray to him. The second thing is to be obedient. Let your light shine before men so that when they see your good works, they'll praise your Father in heaven. Show that Jesus made a difference in your life. Show that those old things that you, you thought would satisfy but you're no longer pursuing, that right now that Jesus truly satisfy, that that's what you love, that's what you want. Submit to your husband or, 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 or submit in a kind, of a kind of a mutual way, but yet love your wife as Christ gave uh, uh, his life for the church, men, for your wife. Be patient, be gracious. And the third one is patience, be patient. Look, it, talk, it took you all your life before you came to faith in Jesus Christ to get saved. Why? Because you were not head. You were hard-hearted. You were running away. You weren't listening. Some of, some of us even heard the gospel over and over again, but we still didn't believe. Be patient with that person. Love them. Nurture them. Be obedient. It, 1 Peter chapter uh, uh, 1, verse 3 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't share the gospel with them because you have to have the gospel to be saved. But you see, the emphasis is on obey. Do what God has called you to do. Number three, don't abandon them. One of the biggest questions I get when people first come to faith in Jesus Christ is, do I have to abandon my friends? Do I have to abandon, I've even had, do I, do I need to abandon my, my husband? He's, he's lost, what, what do we do? Well, the Bible has spoken very clearly about this. And let me, let me say from the get-go, no, you don't have to abandon. Uh, you, don't abandon your spouse. Don't abandon your family. Don't abandon your friends. Now, you might have to, with your friends, abandon some of the activities that you once took place in. Are we clear with that? But you don't abandon them. Why? Because you are now a light of the gospel that God has so graciously placed in your loved one's life. It's you that is going to be sharing and showing what it looks like to be submitted to Christ and to, be, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, when he was talking about people, and this was a real issue in the early church. People were asking the same questions. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. They were regenerated. Do I stay with the same idol-worshiping husband or not? And then so Paul addresses these things in 1 Corinthians 7.12. He says, to the rest I say, not I. He says, I, not the Lord. Now, understand just very quickly, when Paul says that, he's not saying, hey, the Lord didn't say it, I said it, so it's not really authority. He's just saying that Jesus never gave this teaching when he was here on earth. 
But we do know that the scripture that was given was given while he was writing underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. And so he says, he says, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Do you see that? So it's just telling you, you don't run from that particular relationship. But there's something very gracious about this. This goes back about that divide again, the radical change that takes place when somebody's saved, that when somebody is saved and somebody is not saved, that there is going to be contention there. Why? Because of the radical change, right? So what he does is he comes back in verses 15 and 16 and says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, if you have a spouse that sits there and says, you're a Christian, you're not the person I married, I want out, I'm calling for a divorce. It says that if they pursue that divorce and they get that divorce from you, that guess what? You are no longer enslaved to that. He's trying to, what, this is a statement of grace. That believer didn't want to wreck that marriage. In fact, they understand what marriage is more than ever before, but that person is now leaving them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And what he think he's given the permission is, is you don't have to go around for the rest of your life in guilt and shame because that sp unbelieving spouse left you. You are no longer enslaved to that. What a gracious message by Jesus Christ for that person who has been abandoned by the unbelieving spouse. So what do we say about all this? Well, you know, your friends and my friends and the media are going to say the real problem in this world is Christians. They're so divisive on everything. Yeah, we kind of are now that we've just kind of read it. Now, we're not divisive in the fact that we don't, we're not loving and caring and nurturing and forgiving. Are y'all tracking with me at all? Right? Two of you, good, I'll take it. All right, and so, so we're gracious. We're not, we're, not, we're not trying to be divisive in that way, but instead we're gonna be divisive because we're gonna be different. You only have two choices. Place your faith in Christ and follow him as Lord or reject him totally and reject his lordship. Those are the only two things. So really, when you really get to the core of it, it's really not Christians that are causing such a problem. J.C. Ryle writes this, Nowhere, excuse me, he says, he says, let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and division upon earth. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and of the truth of humanity, that it is divided into two groups, those who believe and those who don't. Beloved, who are you? Have you come to recognize that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ has died for you? And it wasn't an accident. He purposely did it. He knew what kind of suffering he would come under. In fact, you ran from it while he's running to it. Repent and believe in him. And so on the, on the other side, there are some who are believers in Jesus Christ in this place. There's no doubt. I've fellowship. I've seen the fruit in many of you that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. So what do we do a message like this? We understand that in this life, there are just going to be divisions. And we don't want the, the divisions to be caused by your sin and my sin. 
but rather divisions that can only happen because we hold to the righteousness and obedience to Jesus Christ. If that happens, we have to be okay with it. If not, then much of it is sin and we need to repent of it. Maybe some of the divisions is not because of you seeking righteousness. Maybe some of your divisions is because of your own sin. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, we go back to him again, we go back to the cross again, and we seek his forgiveness and his grace is sufficient for us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we love you and God, you are good and a wonderful and awesome God. Lord, what a great word that you've taught us. And uh, with a text that we'd probably, if we're reading, may not even take time to be able to look at and to study and allow you to speak to us through. But God, you have definitely spoken to me in this. I pray that you've spoken in the hearts of each person. God, I pray if there are any here that need to know you, that they would be born again and saved today. God, I pray for the rest of us that we will just be in awe about your goodness, your mercy. We'll seek to be obedient no matter what the cost. God, there are people right here that are facing suffering if they obey. And I pray that they will choose the suffering because of the glory that is beyond that suffering. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.